24. Uh, we are hopping forward a little bit to verse 32, and we'll continue on to 52. So the man went to the house, and the camels were unloaded. Straw and fodder were brought for the camels, and water for him and his men to wash their feet. Then food was set before him, but he said, I will not eat until I have told you what I have to say. Then tell us, Laban said. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master abundantly, and he has become wealthy. He has given him sheep and cattle, silver and gold, male and female servants, and camels and donkeys. My master's wife, Sarah, has borne him a son in her old age, and he has given him everything he owns. And my master made me swear an oath and said, You must not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I live, but go to my father's family and to my own clan and get a wife for my son. Then I asked my master, What if the woman will not come back with me? He replied, The Lord, before whom I have walked faithfully, will send his angel with you and make your journey a success so that you can get a wife for my son from my own clan and from my father's family. You will be released from my oath if, when you go to my clan, they refuse to give it to you, then you will be released from my oath. When I came to the spring today, I said, Lord, God of my master Abraham, if you will, please grant success to the journey on which I have come. See, I am standing beside this spring If a young woman comes out to draw water and I say to her, please let me drink a little from your jar. And if she says to me, drink and I'll draw water for your camels too, let her be the one the Lord has chosen for my master's son. Before I finished praying in my heart, Rebecca came out with a jar on her shoulder. She went down to the spring and drew water and I said to her, please give me a drink. She quickly lowered her jar from her shoulder and said, drink and I'll water your camels too. So I drank, and she watered the camels also. I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, son of Nahor, whom Milcah bore to him. Then I put the ring in her nose and the bracelets on her arms, and I bowed down and worshipped the Lord. I praised the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me on the right road to get the granddaughter of my master's brother for his son. Now, if you will show kindness and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, Tell me, so I may not know which way to turn. Laban and Bethuel answered, This is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or the other. Here is Rebekah. Take her and go, and let her become the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has directed. When Abraham's servant heard what they said, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord. Well, thank you very much to our readers. I think they've done a great job reading that passage. And to um, Monica for great song choices. Just, I feel that that theme of the Lord leading and guiding and directing is uh, really right at the heart of things uh, as we look at this passage. So let's pray um, and just ask for his help. And we want to echo that prayer. We've already prayed, Heavenly Father, that your will would be done in our lives. As we turn to your word, we pray for some sense of your will being clarified for us. Think of the amazing uh, 
promise to, to lead and guide and direct that is there so often in your word. And we pray that you would lead us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. I think the titles for sermon series are a closely guarded secret at the moment because we don't seem to have program cards anymore. We're a bit more of a paperless um, church than we used to be. But the title I put down somewhere on the planner was that this is a marriage made in heaven. And I want to select one phrase of our chapter as my text. It's taken from verse 7, where Abraham says to his senior servant... He, God, will send his angel before you. It's a lovely promise. I suppose it's not primarily a promise to us, but it is an assurance that God will bring about, in this case, the marriage of Isaac, Abraham's son, who's about 40 at this stage, to some appropriate woman known at that stage only to God. It will be a marriage made in heaven. He will send his angel before this servant, says Abraham to him. There's a lovely story a well-known preacher used to tell to illustrate the way God's providence and human activity always work together in human relationships. I just wonder if this has ever happened to anybody on their way to church or not. In this story, Harry was going to church. Uh, He pulled out of his drive in his two-seater sports car. He was very grateful that he'd repaired the leak in the roof because it had been raining heavily since dawn, and that wasn't going to stop any time soon. Anyway, as he turned the corner, he saw three figures huddled under a single umbrella at the bus stop. They were all part of Harry's church. The first was old Mrs. Fosdyke. She was well over 70. She suffered great pain from her arthritis, which Harry knew was always worse in damp weather. The second person there was Dr. Roberts, the local GP. Actually, Harry, as good as owed this man his life, a year before, Harry had picked up some rare and dangerous tropical disease on holiday, and Dr. Roberts had diagnosed it and treated it successfully. The third person there was Julia. Harry had had a burning secret passion for Julia ever since she'd moved recently to the area, Well, he hadn't quite got round to declaring his heart to her. Anyway, Harry glanced at the solitary passenger seat beside him in the car. He'd only got a couple of seconds to make the decision as to what to do, but that was enough. He had a plan. With a screech of brakes, he pulled up at the bus stop. Magnanimously, he presented the keys to Dr. Roberts. Very attentively, he lowered Mrs. Fosdyke into the passenger seat. And then with a modest wave goodbye, he huddled close to Julia, praying that the number eight bus would be late this Sunday. Anyway, I don't know whether there's any truth to this story or if it was just very carefully crafted. But in matters of romance, I suppose a good outcome is often put down to the combination of good fortune and good sense. In terms of theology, we might prefer to rather recast it and see it as a combination of Divine providence, God's in control, he's working his purposes out, and human responsibility. So God put Julia by the bus stop, but Harry had to work out how to get with her under the umbrella. So it's a combination of God's control of events and human initiative and activity. And grasping that, that may well be an important lesson 
for a successful love life. But I want to suggest, whether we're married or single tonight, uh, to view this as a chapter about the life of faith generally and how those two forces work together for us. Our chapter is a story in Genesis that's really unlike anything so far in the Bible for length, complexity, and detail. And I love the way these stories do come up in the Bible. I'm sure it's no accident that we have these sorts of stories because they capture our interest in the details of our lives as well. Anyway, it illustrates exactly this interplay of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Only there's one crucial difference, I suppose, from that story I told you. Isaac doesn't feature the one whose marriage the chapter is all about. doesn't feature explicitly until verse 63, right at the end. We didn't even get that far in the reading. We didn't read it. And even when he does make his entry in the story, the picture is not one of him scurrying around to prepare the wedding or anything. He just happens to be out in the fields having a quiet evening stroll when his wife-to-be appears. He's strangely passive in the whole story. At the start of chapter 24, you might say that Rebecca is by the bus stop waiting, albeit hundreds of miles away, but Isaac hasn't met her, and he isn't trying to get her under his umbrella, or get under her, her umbrella, as it were. He isn't even in the car at this stage. So it's an interesting discussion from that point of view. It's a very different world, this chapter, from the practices of our culture in courtship, romance, and marriage. I was intrigued to learn that in a Christian culture that does still go for arranged marriages, the lessons from here are taken very seriously. Did you know that in South India, the words of verse 50, this thing is from the Lord, I think Laban says them there, are written unashamedly on wedding invitations, even where parents have arranged the marriage. This thing is from the Lord. And I suppose before we dismiss that out of hand, just because it's very different from our culture and the way we conduct these things, it's worth reflecting how those marriages often work better than the ones which in our setting come together purely on the combined brains and experience of two young lovers. Incidentally, I'm for choosing, personally, But we can't say necessarily that our culture does courtship um, in the the only way and the best way necessarily. And I think that is helpful for us. Because the primary teaching of this passage is not about marriage generally, but about how God was at work to ensure this particular marriage of Isaac and Rebekah. That's clear, I think, from the very first verse of the chapter. You might find it helpful because we will necessarily refer outside the bits we had read to have the Bible open. Go back to Genesis 24, verse 1. Abraham was now old, very old, and well advanced in years. One other translation puts it. Very old, and the Lord had blessed him in every way which it seems to me is a reminder of what we see so often in Scripture and in this guy Abraham's life. God is the hero of all Bible narratives and stories. If we'd followed the story of Genesis to this point, for some time it's been about the life of Abraham, but he isn't the hero. If he's old and full of years, it's because God has blessed him in every way. 
And I suppose soon, inevitably, his time will come and he'll die. We had uh, Sarah's death last week in the bit we looked at then. And God will carry on the plan that he had begun with Abraham. There's a lovely phrase that Charles Wesley used, which I can adapt. Abraham is immortal until his work is done. But that work won't go on forever in his lifetime. Now at last in his old age... The child of promise has been born, Isaac, and Abraham's work is is basically over. But the unfolding purposes of God are just beginning. Somebody else said something similar. God buries his workers, but he carries his work on. So what we're seeing in this chapter is, I suppose, the last great work of Abraham. He's ensuring that Rebekah and his son Isaac end up under the same umbrella and get married. We'll focus on, really, verses 1 to 9, because if anybody's in the driving seat in this story, it is Abraham. Now, I said there's a, a lot of complexity to the story. You could look at human activity being undertaken by all sorts of different people in the accounts. It's not just Abraham involved. And we're certainly meant to learn from the examples, good and not so good, of the various human characters. It's tempting Just hearing uh, Bethany read that first reading out, it's tempting to focus on the servant's role in the story, isn't it? He's not even given a name, but he's a great one. Um, Devotion to his master is there. He's got buckets of good sense. For example, the way he just slipped into the reluctant brother-in-law, the information about Isaac being the only heir of a rich man. And there's a little bit we didn't read. He just slipped that detail in. Uh, There's a determination to see the matter through. Remember he said he's not going to eat until the matter's settled. All sorts of things like that. I love the way prayer punctuates everything he does. He knows she might not come, her relatives might not let her come even if she's willing, and he prays. In fact, every step of the way he prays. And it's a funny thing, uh, the way the coincidences happen when we pray more. I love the way in that story... God's answer came even before he finished praying when he arrived at the well after his journey. Think how different our daily lives would be if we prayed like him about the details of each day. And his response to success also turned into prayer, that worshipping in the last little bit. He humbles himself before God in worship when uh, he gets effectively the green light. Normally, success inflates us, but not this man. So I think lots to learn from that man. No doubt, we might admire Rebecca for the part she plays in the story. She's a very striking example of service. She's effectively the daughter of a sheikh, but she's obviously not had any silver spoon treatment. She's out at the well working when we meet her. She goes beyond the ordinary demands of hospitality and looking after the man she meets camels. We didn't read this bit, but her simple statement when the marriage is uh, planned, is I will go in verse 8. Which is remarkable, isn't it? She knew maybe the names of the family members who'd gone west a century or so ago, Abraham, Sarah, Lot, but there hadn't been a squeak from any of them for years. So it's amazing that she's as straightforward about going. She probably never dreamt of doing anything more than living and dying in the town of her birth, the city of Nahor. So 
Here she is. She hasn't even had a passport photo of Isaac to look at. But she can see that God has brought this all about. He's calling her and she obeys this divine summons and leaves the town of Nahor, Haran. She is, as one commentator put it, a female Abraham, a perfect match, therefore, for Abraham's son, Isaac. So we could have looked at her, too. Both of those characters illustrate that theme, that God's providence goes hand in hand with human activity. But I want to suggest that Abraham's activity is the key to it all. And the lesson I want us to take to heart from him in verses 1 to 9 is a simple one. When we act in obedience on what we already know to be God's will, God can be trusted to advance his purposes and plans. I said it's a simple one. Do I need to say that again? When we act in obedience on what we already know to be God's will, God can be trusted to advance his purposes and plans. That's how Abraham could say so confidently to his servant, God will send his angel before you. But I think we can take it as a general lesson for the life of faith. Jesus taught us to pray, and we've done so already this service. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That means that everybody who confesses Jesus as Lord aims daily to know and do the will of God. If you're not making God's will your aim to that sort of standard... We want God's will done in our lives and in our world as perfectly as it's done in heaven. Well, it probably means, if that isn't your goal in life, that you don't yet belong to Jesus Christ. I know, even for Christians, there's a struggle. But this story shows us how we can know God's will and be confident of his help in pursuing his will. And I want to say that is if we are familiar with the trajectories of his word. Let me try and explain that slightly complicated phrase. Um, Illustrated by, by referring to a rocket. The trajectory of a rocket is the path it will follow based on its shape and weight and speed and direction. And you can work where a rocket is, work out where a rocket's going if you know its trajectory. With God's guidance... It's something similar. The Bible doesn't always give us a detailed description of God's will for our lives. But if we listen carefully and study the Bible's details, its shape and speed and weight and direction, we will see trajectories that help us understand God's guidance for us. Let me try and show you how that worked for Abraham. Clearly, God spoke to Abraham directly on some occasions and made his will known in detail to him. Leave Haran you and your whole family, back in whenever it was, chapter uh, 12. That was pretty clear, or chapter 11. But as far as we know from Genesis, those sorts of occasions were actually pretty rare. Most of the time, it seems that Abraham had to trace out for himself what the trajectories of guidance and obedience would be from what God had said and revealed in the past. So now, as he contemplates his death, And Isaac's future in Genesis 24, three different trajectories I've sort of seen and understood as I look at this combine to show Abraham what God's will is at that time. The first trajectory, I suppose, is that Isaac must have a wife. He knows that. The second was that that wife could not be a Canaanite. That's already clear to him. And thirdly, he's clear that 
Isaac belongs in Canaan, where he now lives. And those three aspects of guidance, I'm calling the trajectories, from what God has already said, they combine to to lead him to a decision. I'm going to send my servant to find a a wife for Isaac from my family back in Haran. A decision and a confidence, which is expressed there in verse 7. Look at it with me. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on earth, saying to your offspring, I will give this land, he will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. Once we know God's will based on the trajectories of what he's already said, we can have great confidence that God in his providence will bring it to pass as we do our best to fulfill his will. I assume that that's something most of us want very much here. We'd love to be able to project God's will for our lives from what we've seen in his word, where we don't have a very specific, clear mandate. We want our questions answered, don't we? For our families, for our futures, for contemplating moving jobs or moving homes or thinking about different roles in church life. We'd love confidence as we make those decisions and we love the confidence that Abraham seemed to have that when we aim to do God's will he will send his angel ahead of us to bring his purposes to pass let me just try and tease out those three trajectories I mentioned in Abraham's mind a little more just to try and get us to see how he got to the point where he had that confidence I'm using that word trajectories because God hadn't given Abraham commands as such. He hadn't said, Isaac must have a wife, or she mustn't be a Canaanite, or Isaac mustn't go back to your homeland. He's got to stay in Canaan. But he had said things which pointed in that direction. So the rocket of God's will had been launched, and several times God has pulled back the clouds and shown Abraham its speed and size and direction. He could trace the rocket's trajectory, therefore, on into his present circumstances, so he could tell what he needed to do. He knew to start with that Isaac must have a wife. That was pretty clear from God's original promise to him, that God would make of Abraham a great nation, especially when God had narrowed that down, if you know the story well, told him that that couldn't happen through his servant, Eliezer, or his son by another wife, Ishmael. It had to happen through Isaac. Therefore, logically, Isaac must marry. It was pretty clear that Isaac couldn't marry a Canaanite. God hadn't said so explicitly, but God had made it very plain that one day he would judge the Canaanites. It was a long way off, 400 years or so, but he was quite clear that it would happen. And the whole episode, if you can cast your mind back to it, with Sodom and Gomorrah, must have taught Abraham very clearly what his son risked if he married into a culture which would fall under a judgment like that. Let me just go into a lay-by quickly. Let me add that um, for us, this whole matter, it seems to me, has been made unmistakably clear since then. If we are in relationship with God, to walk knowingly into a marriage with someone who isn't part of God's family will almost always be an act of unfaithfulness 
with painful, painful consequences. And the testimony of scripture again and again is, don't willingly choose that. Don't willingly choose it. I think that raises questions for us if we're parents. What do you want for your children? This is the last great act of Abraham in his life. And he was burdened about it, wasn't he? How much does it matter to us to get Christian friends for our children? Some of us here have got children who are teenagers. We want to ask, are we doing what we can to make the Christian peer group attractive and fun for them? Or will they end up forming their close friendships only with non-Christian peers? How much does it matter to us to see the Christian faith passed on to the next generation? Enough to change our summer holiday plans so that they can go on house parties? Enough for the men of the church to be involved and invested so that the boys in the church, as they grow up, are kept within range of God's family? Those are the sorts of questions we ought to be asking if we're taking the sort of issues that Abraham was taking seriously, uh, seriously ourselves. What about the other trajectories facing Abraham? Isaac belongs in Canaan. That was clear in our passage in verses 6 and 7. Make sure that you don't take my son back there, Abraham said. Why not? God hadn't commanded it explicitly. But the promise was explicit about Canaan being the land where God would bless. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household in my native land and who spoke to me, promised me on earth, saying to your offspring, I will give this land. So to take Isaac back to Mesopotamia, all the way east, would be to wind the clock back on what God had done and said. And Abraham feels strongly, Isaac must not marry a Canaanite. Isaac belongs in Canaan and must not go back east. And that commitment means that he's making choices that will make it very hard for Isaac ever to get married, humanly speaking. Fancy trying to get a wife for someone who hasn't even seen him. How do you ever expect to find a wife for him if he stays at home? But Abraham, he knew he'd tried to take shortcuts before to make things happen. And this time he's committed. He's going to trust God that God has it under control. And so he is confident God will send his angel. He's not cocky. He accepts that he might have misread these trajectories I keep talking about. And I think we have to say that we can't always know God's will with mathematical certainty. So in verse 8, Abraham says, if the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you'll be released from this oath of mine. As if he's saying, I may have got this wrong, I'm not God, and if she won't come back, fine, you're released from this oath. He's not cocky, but he is confident. God will send his angel ahead of you. Well, so much for just putting our toe in the water of the chapter. As you haven't had the benefit of reading the whole chapter necessarily before you got here tonight, I encourage you to read it over and chew it over and talk it over and pray it over. But I've got two points of application as we close. Contemplation and confidence. By contemplation, I mean that we've got to give ourselves to the contemplation of the scriptures if we want God's guidance in our lives. Because in so many of our decisions, God won't give us explicit commands. He won't write our future in the sky. We probably wouldn't do what he said anyway if he did do that. 
But he doesn't normally tell us, do move jobs or don't, do move house or don't, do marry or don't. But if we set ourselves to contemplate the revealed word of God, he really will guide us that way. We'll be able to discern from the trajectories of what he said in the past, um, the trajectories of God's will, what matters. And that, it seems to me, is why the midweek groups that we have in normal church life are so important. It's why it's important to redo them from time to time. For the word to dwell richly amongst us so that we can actually contemplate together and help each other, or indeed our daily personal Bible study. Don't you think the Bible is working full-time, 168 hours a week, to fill our minds with junk? And we've got to try to counteract that if we ever want to do God's will. So, contemplation. Contemplation, then confidence. As we act, God will be acting. We can be absolutely confident of that. So somewhere else in the Bible, God works everything for good for those who love him. He does still send his angel ahead of us. Not always to bring to pass what we think is best, but certainly what he thinks is best if we're aiming to follow him. And that's exactly what we saw at the start. God and humanity working in partnership. It is, of course, at the very heart of the Christian message. It's what Abraham was longing to see. And it was the heartbeat supremely of the Lord Jesus, as we remember at Easter. Lovely to sing about Gethsemane and him setting himself in prayer to do his father's will, even if it wasn't his immediate choice. He didn't want to do it in one sense. He set himself to do it and to go to Calvary's cross for our sake. Very costly for him to go to the cross. But never for one second did he doubt that God would work through his obedience. And his confidence wasn't misplaced. If he could have confidence, then so through him can we. Whatever the challenges we face next week or next month or next year. Let's pray together. We pray you'd help us, Heavenly Father, to contemplate your word and to discern your will and to pursue it. Think of this issue of marriage and indeed singleness for many of us here as well. We pray again for your leading in that matter, that you'd commit us to your will. We pray for the other areas of life where obedience to your will is a difficult thing for us. And we pray afresh, your will be done. Give us confidence that as we commit ourselves to that, you will lead us by even angelic forces. We pray you'd help us to trust you and to see you at work in our lives as we obey. And help us to weigh this and to talk it through and to uh, know your word dwelling richly among us. How we thank you for the stories of the Bible like this that find a way into our heart. Please work them into our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.